All right, so uh, we are in this series, Pillars, and so we're about in our fourth week. we got one more week of it, and essentially this series, we're talking about really important things to us here at Journey and things that we hold on to, and so we started with people and talked about community and the importance of community and being connected to each other, connecting people to each other. Then we moved on to voice, which is our idea of worship and responding to what God has done in our life. Uh, Last week, we talked about breath, which is this idea about how connected we are to God sometimes when we don't even realize it. And today, we're going to talk about water. And specifically, we have some baptisms at the end, uh, but we want to invite anybody that wants to be baptized today. We, you have no excuses. Uh, we have clothes. We have everything you're going to need. Uh, and so if it's something you've been considering, just pay attention today and then respond at the end if you choose. So I want to tell you a story to get started. When I was in fifth grade, uh, my parents, we moved houses, and so I had to go to a new school. And I don't know how many of you guys experienced that, having to go to a new school, uh, but especially in your fifth grade year, it's incredibly brutal, okay? Because you think about it, you've had these four years, really five years with kindergarten, I mean, and then all of a sudden, fifth grade, like, that's your year, all right? Or like eighth grade or senior year or whatever. So we moved, and we moved uh, just a few miles down the road, so we went from, I went from Overdell uh, Elementary, uh, the Chiefs, and then I went to Brooks Elementary, and so I'm at Brooks, and so I'm there for a couple of weeks, and I don't know anybody. Like, there's a couple people I'm kind of familiar with, but really don't know anybody. I'm officially the new kid, and it's my fifth grade year, so it's really weird and awkward. And so inevitably, what happens is we get to the point where uh, it happens where we all go outside, and we're playing at recess time, and so we're kind of doing the thing that kids do. About two weeks in, uh, we start playing kickball. Right, and kickball is a great game. I love kickball. I still love to play kickball. And so uh, we're at this part of the the game where, and this is like torture. This is the worst thing that kids do to each other. So if you're a teacher, don't let your kids do this. Um, it's the part where we line up and then we pick players. You guys know about thing how horrible that thing is. And so I'm the new kid, right? And if you saw a picture of me in fifth grade, I wasn't exactly. I'm still not really athletically gifted, but I definitely wasn't in fifth grade. And so. I look the part of the last pick, okay? I just say it was going for me, right? So we get to it, and they start picking players. Of course, they all know each other, and we eventually get down towards the end. And I'll go ahead and say this, and I know today, in today's world, and it's true because a lot of them could beat me, that girls are just as good as boys. But when you're in fifth grade and they start picking the girls before you, there's like this moment inside of you like, what is going on? So we finally eventually get down to like the last two kids. I think the kid they didn't pick, I had a broken leg or something. And the guy was like, I'll take the new kid. Don't even bother to know my name. Take the new kid. So we're playing the game and it's kickball. And so we're playing and we're playing for a few minutes. We only had like really like 10 minutes to play. And all I remember, and I remember this moment, like this is how much it stuck with me. So we're at the end, and our teacher blows the whistle. And so the system was, if she blew the whistle, that means we're about five minutes before we have to go inside. If she blows it twice, that means it's time to go inside. We're done. So she blows the whistle, and I'm counting the kids in front of me. And I'm like, all right, there's two kids in front of me. Like, maybe they'll just go really slow, and I won't have to kick, you know? And, and so, because I, I, I'm not bad at kickball, but I'm just, I'm just imagining this moment. So the kid in front of me, he, he goes up to kick, and we're down by, I think it was like a run. Like, this is like a, it's not made up, but it's like we're down by a run. And so the kid in front of me, here's what I'm thinking. I remember these moments. I'm thinking, A, I want this kid to kick and get out, and the teacher blows the whistle, and we're done. Or I want him to kick a home run, the game's over, it doesn't even matter what the new kid does, right? He doesn't do either. He kicks and gets on first base. 
So now, like, the bases are there's two people on or it's loaded. I don't really remember that detail. But all I know is I'm up, and I know I'm up against the clock, and I know I also have a chance to win the, the, the game for our team. And so in this moment, it's like this big thing. Like, I'm imagining, like, I'm going to kick a home run, and they're going to pick me up, and they're actually going to learn my name and carry me off the field, you know, all this stuff. So I have all this pressure on me. So the roller rolls the ball. It's not a good roll, but we'll talk about that kid some other time. And so he rolls it to me, and I go to kick, and I do the worst possible thing you can do in kickball. I topped it. You know what I'm talking about, where you kick the top of the ball instead of underneath the ball? The ball rolls about five feet in front of me, kind of like this slow little pathetic dribble. The kid grabs it, beams me in the back, (laughs) and I'm out. Now, the reason I tell you that story is this is the story that stuck with me. Because in that moment, so when I would play kickball or basketball or baseball with friends in the neighborhood, what would happen is sometimes when you get a bad break, you'll yell, I want a do-over. And they give you a do-over and you get a chance to redeem yourself. And in this moment, I wanted so loud to yell do-over and for just to have another chance to get it right. But I didn't. And it was over. And I became the new kid for a little while later until I threw up in the hallway one day and then I became the kid that threw up in the hallway. So (laughs) that's a true story too. So here's the thing. Uh, Sometimes in life, all of us want a new start. We want a chance to do it again, a chance to get it right this time. And so in John chapter 3, there's this interesting exchange between Jesus and this guy named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is this religious ruler. Uh, He's kind of a leader in in the church. And so Jesus, obviously, at this point in his ministry, he's doing a lot of things, and people are paying attention to what he's doing. And and basically, what Nicodemus' problem is, is that everything that Jesus is teaching kind of conflicts with the stuff that he's believed and thought about. And so he's kind of having this moment where he's, he's been guided and orchestrated by this set of beliefs, but all of a sudden these new set of beliefs that he's kind of holding on to because of Jesus, he's really confused and he's wondering if he needs to do something different. He's basically wondering if everything at this point was actually wrong and he needs to go in a new direction. And so he has this moment where he's going to ask Jesus some questions because he's trying to figure out, does he need to do over? Does he need a new start? Does he need a new direction? And so in John chapter 3, it tells us this. There was a Pharisee, which is kind of a religious leader idea, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. And the reason he comes at night, they believe, is because he didn't want anybody else to see because at this point, as you, if you followed the story, if you've read the Bible, uh, the, the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, and Jesus, they're, they're like this. They're button heads over a lot of things. And they're always trying to trap Jesus and trick Jesus. And so for Nicodemus to go to Jesus and ask him some sincere questions would not have played well amongst his peers. And so he goes to him at night and he says this, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied to this, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, okay? And so he said, and this is like this question, because in our world, we know what Jesus is saying, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more in detail, but in their world, they didn't have an idea, they didn't have a context for this. And he says, how can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born, which is weird, right? Okay. And, and so he's like, he's imagining like, what do you, like, we have to be born again? Like that just seems kind of weird. And Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God. Now this is not about heaven and hell. This is about this idea we've been talking about, about the kingdom of what God is doing here and now in this place and in our lives. He says, no one can get in line with that. No one can be a part of the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives, be- flesh, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. 
you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So essentially, this language he's talking about is this idea of born again. He's talking about like a, a do-over. He's talking about that you have this moment, this, this period in life where you come to this point, this line in the sand, and you decide you need to do things differently. Essentially, we're talking about this born again thing is it's this moment where you realize that things haven't been going the way that you expected, and you have this encounter with Jesus that kind of changes everything and propels you forward. Now, John really wants to make sure that we understand what Jesus is trying to do here, that Jesus came for a specific reason, and that's to give all of us a new chance, a new start, a new hope. And so right after this story, we we see that that John pens some of the most famous verses um, in the entire Bible in John 3.16, and it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, you've seen that verse a million times. You've ever watched a football game or a basketball game. There's somebody there with the John 3.16 sign. But this message is really important. Because so many of us have a distorted view of who God is and what God wants to do. And what John's trying to make crystal clear is that God, through Jesus, has come into this world to love the world, to give to the world. He says, go on and say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, for a lot of people, when it comes to God, their understanding of God is much like an ancient belief in God, which is the idea that if you do the right things... If you say the right things, if you go to the right places at the right time, if you follow all of the rules, then maybe God won't be angry with you. As long as you do everything exactly as God demands, and what it does, we talked about before, it causes anxiety. It causes anxiety in us with trying to understand God. I mean, here's the thing. Most of us in this room, the reason you're here is because you're at least attempting to do it right. You're at least asking the question, if God exists and God kind of orchestrates all of this thing, how do I get my life in line with him? And what we see very clearly from this understanding is that God is a God who gives. He's a God who wants to give do-overs, who wants to give second chances, who doesn't want to condemn the world, condemn the world but to save it. Now, when you're a kid, this is really easy to get in line with. Because when you're a kid, it's easy to be like, oh, yeah, God's big and God loves everything and all of this stuff. And so, yeah, of course, God would be for me. But the problem is the older we get, the more complicated it gets. Because all of us in this room, we have like layers of stuff. For some of us, we have stuff that's happened to us that we're carrying. For some of us, it's stuff we've chosen to do that now we're carrying. For, for some of us, it's questions we have because, you know, when you're a kid and people tell you, oh, you got to believe this, you're just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, you know. But as you become an adult, what happens is you have all these questions because you have all this life experience. And all of a sudden, this gets really, really complicated. And so for a lot of us, we want to believe this is true. But then when we think about our life, we think about the things, we think about the questions we have. And for some of us, it comes down to this. When we think about our sin and our mistakes and our guilt in our shame, it's really hard just to buy into this idea that, oh, we just get a, we just get a new chance, right? Because nowhere else in life do you get that, right? Oh, I've racked up all this credit card bet. Oh, you know what? If you, you didn't know. Just forget about it, right? I said this to my boss. Ah, it was just a bad day. Don't worry about it. You don't, you don't get a do-over. And then all of a sudden, we're offered this, and it seems a little bit confusing, And so what I want to say is, when you think about Christianity, the the thought you should ponder is, could this actually be true? 
could this message of Jesus actually be true? And what he's offering, could this actually be the way that it is? So I want to look at a couple stories today, some of my favorite stories. And these are familiar stories, and these are stories we've talked about. And if you spend any time in church, maybe you've heard these stories. If not, these are three of the most amazing stories that we see in Scripture. In John chapter 8, there, there's this, this incident that takes place. Um, and it's one of the most famous stories that we see of Jesus. But essentially what happens is they're, they're at church, they're in the temple. And while they're kind of there and everything is getting going, um, there's an, a scene that starts to take place. Now, the best way to describe this scene for us to understand would be church is about to take place or the service is about to start and at 11.15 and 11 o'clock, there is a woman that's grabbed half naked and dragged into the lobby, clearly not of her own will. And she's left there laying in the lobby, exposed, embarrassed. And there would be this moment where at first we'd be like, what is going on, right? Why is this situation happening? Why are we experiencing this? Why are we seeing this? And, And for this woman, I mean, imagine this. I mean, this is the most humiliating thing that's ever happened. You're terrified, you're defenseless, you're publicly humiliated. You're probably sitting there trying to cover yourself. And you're all of a sudden brought in front of a room full of people. Exposed is an understatement. And what we find out is this woman has been caught in adultery. Now, what's interesting is it obviously takes two to commit adultery, but there's no man being dragged in here, right? It's the woman. Let's make an example of her. And John makes it very clear that the accusers, the people that have drugged this woman in, they're less concerned with justice and more concerned with actually trapping Jesus. Now, in their custom, in their world, adultery was taken very seriously. Now, I realize that in our culture, we don't take it as seriously as we should, right? We just don't. Unless you're the one being cheated on, then it's a big deal, right? But we've we kind of written this off as just like, oh, it's something that happens. People do this. It's dumb. But in their culture, this is a really big deal. In fact, if you were found in the act of adultery, according to the Mosaic law, you could actually be stoned and not like Colorado, like we're going to kill you, okay? It's a slow burn for some of you. You'll get it later. So you could be killed for this. Now, this poses a problem. The first problem is this. If, if Jesus agrees that this woman should be killed, well, first of all, he'd be in line with the Mosaic law. But the other problem is he's this guy that's been talking about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. And so for him now that this woman is actually caught, and here's what's fascinating. We think about sin like this. Very few of us are actually ever caught in the sin, Right? We get caught after because we lie or, or we get caught, you know, we, our guilt overtakes us or there's a receipt that gets found or something like this. Very few people actually get caught in the act. But here she is. She has no excuses. There's nothing she can say. She is caught in the act. And so he can say, yeah, she, she deserves to die because that's what the law says. And then all of a sudden this grace and mercy stuff goes out the window. But maybe even the bigger problem is that if he agrees with them, she deserves to die. Now he's in violation of Roman law. See, because in their culture, Rome rules the world. And the Jews had no authority to kill somebody without Rome's permission. That's why later when Jesus is crucified, the Jewish people have to get permission from Rome to even crucify Jesus. And so now the problem is if he agrees she deserves to die, and they stone her, now Jesus has violated Roman law. So in their mind, this is the perfect scenario. They've got him. 
And Jesus, he does this interesting thing that many of you know the story, that, that in this moment, this really tense moment, he just kneels down in the sand and he starts to write with his finger. Now, what's fascinating about this is this is the only time that we ever see recorded Jesus writing anything. Jesus never wrote a book or a poem or anything like that. We don't have any of Jesus' writings. They don't exist. He didn't write. Other people wrote the things that he said and the experiences, but he himself never wrote anything. Except for this one time, he's on the ground, and he's writing. And in the middle of writing on the ground, he stops, and he looks up at the crowd. And there's this line that says, it says they were asking to trick Jesus. And it says when they continue to ask Jesus their question, sorry, the screen's not good. It's up. This is my reading. Sorry. Okay. No, put that back. That's my fault. All right, let's do a do-over real quick right there. All right. <laughs> When this is going on, Jesus has this brilliant line, and he says, sure, let's stone her. If there's anyone here who has not sinned, let them throw the first stone. And it's like this brilliant moment where Jesus is acknowledging, yes, she's done something wrong, but if we're going to punish her, it's got to be by somebody that can actually throw the stone." that they themselves could not be exposed in this situation. See, the reality is every single one of us are sinners. Me too, right? Just so you know. And you're like, yeah, we figured that, okay? So, so here's the thing. All of us have. And Jesus has this moment where he's like, all right, yeah, let's do it. But whoever hasn't sinned, throw the first stone. And then he bends back down and he starts to write in the sand again. And we don't know what he wrote. He could have wrote the names of the people around him that if they tried to say that they were the ones that hadn't sinned, he'd be like, well, here's your name. I know what you've done. Or maybe he's writing the sins of all of the people around. Whatever he wrote, combined with what he just said, the moment has passed. And here's what we see in verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, starting with the older ones because they're the wiser ones. They, they understand this, this isn't working the way that we hoped. Until so only Jesus was left there with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her. And I think we missed the power of this moment. That here is a person who has nowhere to hide, who has nowhere to run, you know, the irony of the story, a couple of things is this. The first thing that's ironic is there was one person in the crowd that could have picked up a stone and thrown it at her, and it was Jesus, but he doesn't. The second thing is this, when you think about it, what she's done, adultery is a sin. Now, I don't know if you need to be killed for it, but adultery is a sin. What she's done is one of the things that's going to put Jesus on the cross, So if anybody has right to be indignant about what is going on, it would be him. And Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. Shortly before this, there's another experience Jesus has with a woman, and it takes place in this area called Samaria. Now, Samaria, you have to know this detail about Samaria, is the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. In fact, they were, they were enemies. 
And in fact, it was so bad, it was like a racial issue. So a long time ago, there's this story that takes place in the Old Testament where the Samaritans kind of do this thing, and, and the Jews actually consider them like half-breeds. Like, they consider them lower than the dogs. And I mean, it, it's this horrible thing, and there's wars and battles and this, all this disrespect on many different levels between the Samaritans and the Jews. And the ironic thing is they're actually kind of worshiping the same God, but they just don't seem to like each other, and so there's all these problems. But so Jesus is walking through this area, and they have to get to Judea, but the fastest way to get through Judea is Samaria. Now, most Jews would avoid Samaria at all costs, but Jesus is like, no, we're going to go through Samaria. And so he comes to this place where um, it's about noontime, and him and his disciples are there. And so his disciples, Jesus is like, why don't you guys go into town and you know, try to get some food, and I'm just going to hang out here and rest for a little bit. Now, the Bible gives us an interesting detail about this experience, and what it says is that it was noontime. Now, we may read that and not think anything of it, but what you have to understand about what's going to happen and why it's important that it's noon is this. In their culture, the women in the villages would get up early in the morning and they would go to the well. And the wells were usually right outside of town and it was a deep well. The reason they used to do them outside of town often is to keep the water pure from all of the stuff that's happening in the village. And so they want to separate the water sources. And so it's also deep because they live in an area where there's water deep, deep, deep in the ground, but it's also like a desert environment. And so they have these wells. So the women would get up early in the morning and they would go and get enough water for them to have for the day, for their families. Now, this was a tedious task, and why the men weren't doing it, great question. But here are the women, and they're out there doing this. Now, the reason they would go in the morning is because they want to make sure they have enough water for the day. But they also went because it's cooler in the morning, and they're in a hot, dry area. And so they would go early in the morning because it's cooler, and you have to have water for your family for the day. But then the other reason they would go all at the same time in the mornings, it was a social thing for them. Women did not have a lot of the privileges that men did, and so this became like a social area for them to sit around and talk and, and, and communicate with each other and talk about their lives and, and share with each other. So it became like a social thing for them. So the only reason you would go to the well at noon is if you didn't want to be seen by anybody. The only reason you go to the well at noon is if you don't want to have to talk to people. The only reason that you go to the well at noon is if you don't want to have to explain yourself to anybody. And Jesus tells us that, the story tells us that at noon, here's Jesus by the well, and here comes this woman. And this woman has an interesting past. She's made a lot of bad choices along the way. And, and clearly, one of the things that she's trying to avoid is all of the other women and people in her community. And that's why she comes alone by herself at this point in the day when nobody else would come. And so what we find out is this woman... Jesus asks this question. He's like, you know, he kind of tells her some stuff and he says, well, go and get your husband and we can talk about this. And she goes, well, the man I'm with is actually not my husband. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're right. It's actually not your husband. And you've actually been with five other guys who are your husband. Now, let me go ahead and say this without hurting anybody's feelings, although it's probably going to. Um, if you've been married five times um, and it hasn't worked out, there's always a common denominator, just so you know. And so clearly this woman has some stuff that she's got to work through. And so Jesus starts this conversation with her about water, but then it gets real. And you know what happens when it gets real and it gets really uncomfortable and you don't want to talk about it? What do we do? We change the subject, right? And that's what she does. She tries to change the subject and talk about other things, but Jesus won't let her get away from this. And in fact, there's this great line where he asks her for a drink and she's like, why would you ask for a drink? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Like people don't do that. And Jesus has this response because it's not about water. And here's what he says in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, speaking of himself, you would have asked him and he would have given you 
living water. He would have given you something that's better than the water that's going to come out of that ground. He would have given you something else. Now, this exchange continues between them, and you need to go back and read it. But eventually, it gets to the point this woman actually believes that Jesus has the ability to give her a new start, a do over, that he actually can be someone that speaks into her life and makes her better and changes things for her. And do you know what happens? This is the most amazing part of the story that we never read because it's way down at the end of the chapter. After this, this woman who doesn't want to see anybody, speak to anybody, but because she's had an encounter with Jesus that changes things for her, the Bible tells us that she runs back to the village. And here's what it says in 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town. So she goes back and she just starts telling everybody about what Jesus just told her. Many of the Samaritans from that town believe in him because of the woman's testimony. Now listen to this line. He told me everything I ever did. Can I go ahead and tell you that if I told you right now everything that I ever did, there wouldn't be anybody else sitting in these seats. You would leave. And here's the thing. If I told you and knew everything you ever did, I probably wouldn't want you here, right? I mean, think about this. Think about everything you've ever done. All of the things you've thought, you've said, all of the things you've hurt people. I mean, let's be honest. We've hurt people in this room. They don't even know we hurt them. But we did. We've done terrible things to each other. And Jesus told her everything. He knew everything. And he still chose to love her and to offer her grace and mercy. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you have said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now, isn't this amazing in this story? You see, like the first woman, she has this encounter with Jesus that kind of changes things for her. And all of a sudden, there's this new hope. There's this do-over. There's this thing that all of these things that she does doesn't matter as much as what she's about to do. But here's what's fascinating. Her moment, her story, it not only changed her life, but it changed the lives of others. See, the reality is nobody in this room has any idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to follow Jesus. Your family, generations of people could be changed because of your decision. A couple chapters later, there's a story about this guy. He's been blind since birth and What's fascinating about their culture was that they believed that if something was wrong with you, you had a deformity, if you had some type of illness, kind of, the, the, the reason you had that is not because of anything, they didn't understand genetics and they didn't understand all the things we understand about the human body now, but for them, it was if something was wrong with you, it's because somebody sinned. And either it was your parents that sinned and they messed up, and so you were born like this, or God knew you were going to sin in some way later on in life, so he just made you blind from the beginning. I mean, a terrible way to think about life and the world, and especially people that had these, these challenges in life. But that's what the culture. And so because of that, you were often an outcast if you were born with any type of deformity or any type of illness or any type of issue like this. I mean, they would just cast you out because clearly you've done something wrong. 
And in this story, Jesus encounters this blind guy. And it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. In fact, I preached a sermon about it two years ago. And I talked about spit for 45 minutes and everybody was grossed out. So I'll save you those details. But in this story, essentially, Jesus, he comes to this blind guy. And, and so this guy's like been blind since birth. And he doesn't believe that anybody can do anything for him. And so Jesus takes this moment where he literally, the Bible says, he literally, I mean, I don't want to be gross, but he spits in the mud. And my point was how much, how much, how much, he spits in the dirt. I mean, and he takes these like cakes of mud and he puts them on the guy's face. And I was thinking, how much spit do you have to spit to make like mud cakes? I mean, that's a lot of spit, right? So clearly Jesus is like hawking one up. And so he, he makes these mud, I told you it was gross, but he makes these like mud like cakes and he puts them on the guy's eyes. And he sends the guy to go wash it away. And the Bible tells us that when the guy washes it away, he can see. Now, I get that's really hard to believe. And I get that it almost seems impossible that that could happen, right? I mean, it seems like, how, what? And it seems impossible, and it seems unlikely, unless it's you that it happened to. There are no categories for what Jesus does here. And so, of course, everybody questions it, because that's what we do when things are unexplainable, when things happen we can't question or can't understand or wrap our minds around we question it. And so that's what happens to this guy. I mean, it's just the way it goes is that when something happens in your life and it changes things, but you, it, it, it breaks everybody's brains to think about you were this way and now you're this way and this was a part of your life and now it's not. People don't understand that. And so people start to question him. And the religious leaders get really involved because they don't believe that Jesus could do something like this for somebody like you because clearly you're messed up because you were born blind. They even get to the point in the story where they drag the guy's parents out. I mean, this thing about it, this is like the greatest day of their life. Their son is not blind anymore. It's the greatest day of his life. He can actually see for the first time. And it's not just talking about physical blindness here. And so they keep questioning him because they, they refuse to believe that this could be a part of his story. And here's what he eventually just gets frustrated. He says this. He replied, whether he is a sinner, because they, they accuse Jesus of being like a magician or a sorcerer or the sinner that's tapping into these dark powers. He says, I, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was blind, but now I see. That's it. I was blind. And I said, I get it's really hard for you to understand this experience that I've just had. But I experienced it, and I have no other explanation other than I couldn't see and then I could. And they asked him, what did he do to you? You know, well, he spit a bunch. He made a little, you know, that was kind of weird. But how did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you and you did not listen. And here it is. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciple? They didn't believe it. And here's what I think this guy's kind of saying. Listen, when it comes to the experiences of Jesus in your life, and when it comes to him being able to literally and then often metaphorically make you from blind to where you can see, which is many of our stories, I can't answer all of your questions. I don't know. I'm not that smart. But I do know this. I was blind, and now I see. I needed a second chance, and I got it. I needed a do-over, and he gave it to me. So, 
based on these stories, for us, when it comes to Jesus, who is left to condemn you? No one. He told me everything I ever did, and he still chose to love me. And I just don't know, but what I do know is I was blind, but now I see. One more story. So in the book of Acts, it's right after the church has kind of taken off, and Jesus already died, and he's already ascended to heaven and, and done this. And so the church has taken off, and, and so there's this movement that's going on, and it's starting to spread these messages of Jesus, because now not only is it about the things that he's done, but it's about the words that he professed for people and the words that he said and the way in which he told people that he can change things for them. And so the church is starting to take off, and, and in Acts chapter 8, there's this weird encounter between this guy named Philip and a eunuch. Now, depending on what translation you use, they'll say eunuch or say Ethiopian. But eunuchs, if, if you don't know, I don't have time to get into it. It's a weird story, okay? Just Google it later. And so, um, so they're in this, he's, he's with this guy who's had a lot of challenges in his life and things that have been forced upon him that nobody would ever sign up for. And so he's got a complicated life. And so Philip, he sees him, and Philip's one of the early church leaders, and, and so he sees this guy, and he, he comes across him, and this guy's a eunuch, so his life's kind of confusing, but he also has some authority in his life, and, and he's able to, like, command things, and people do things for him, and, and, and so he's really conflicted by his life. And the Bible tells us that there's this moment where Philip sees him, and he sees that he's reading the scriptures, and this guy, he's really, really confused by everything that he's reading because, again, he didn't grow up in this environment, and a lot of the things are confusing, um, but he has a lot of questions. And the Bible tells us that Philip spends just like a few minutes with him. And just based on, the Bible tells the good news that he hears about Jesus, that second chances are possible. And everything that you've done up until this point does not have to define you. You choose for it to, but it doesn't have to. And so he decides that, that he wants to, to, to buy into this. He wants to be a part of this. And, and this is foreign to him. This is new to him. And, and so Philip explains some more things to him. And, and the Bible tells us that there's this point in, in the story where he wants to do over. He wants the second chance. He wants to believe this, even if it's going to be really hard. And it's going to be for him. And so the Bible tells us, he says, and the eunuch said, here is some water. What prevents me from being baptized? See, what he, he realizes is that we go back to the beginning. Jesus says, okay, you got to be born of the water. And so what baptism is, is like this expression of something that's already happened in your heart and your mind. And so you do it. And it's literally like this physical representation of, as we, we learn that you're going down into this watery grave, which I know is confusing, but then you come up and you come up as a new person. You come up alive. But the other side of this is it also has to be your choice, right? It has to be your decision. Nobody can decide this for you. And people get confused because, you know, some of us, we grew up in traditions where as a child, this happens to you, you have no say. And that, I'm not saying that doesn't count. What I'm saying is, do you want it to be your choice? Do you want it to be your decision? Do you want to have this moment where you have like the eunuch and you're like, what prevents me from making this choice? For some people, it's like, well, I'm too old, and, and I don't want to do this. And okay, that's fine. So, so here's the thing. What prevents me from being baptized is the question. The answer for him was nothing. There was some water, and based on his understanding, there's nothing special about the water. And in fact, the way we read it in the New Testament, it was like a drainage ditch. That's what it is. It's just a ditch. 
And here's see, like, there's some water. But see, I believe this, and I want this in my life. So if this is one of the things I have to do, sign me up. So the answer for him was nothing. But here's what I know. It's not that simple for you, is it? See, for some of us, the reason that we don't want to give in, the reason we don't want to be baptized, the reason we don't want to confess, the reason we don't want to get our lives in line with Jesus is because we don't feel worthy. Or maybe for some of you, you feel like everything you've done disqualifies you, right? I mean, you've done some bad stuff, right? That's what you think. Or if you knew the type of person that I am, there's no way you would think that God's offering this to me. Or maybe your problem is you're worried about what other people think. Because you're worried, like, I'm going to have to explain this to people, how I went to church and got baptized, or how I'm doing these things now. And, and here's the thing about following Jesus, is when you follow Jesus, I mean, there's some things that used to be really important to you that just aren't anymore. And there's things now that are important to you that never were before, and it can confuse people, and it can make things complicated. Or maybe for you, your, your fear is, I don't have all of my answers, my questions answered. Can I go ahead and tell you that if you have to wait for all of your answers to come, you're never going to do anything in life. Well, according to what we learned today, is there anyone left to condemn you? No. What if Jesus knew everything you ever did and he still chose you? And what if you don't have to know everything? You just have to know that you were blind and now you see. Do you know what keeps a lot of people from making this a part of their life? Themselves. It's you. And so what keeps you from being baptized? I don't know. Maybe it's just you. But here's what I'll tell you. We have some water right there. And if you'd like to be baptized today, we have everything you need. Clothes, shorts, towels. And maybe for some of you, it's like, I'm not going to get baptized. That's fine. Don't. It's okay. But maybe for you, what it is, is this realization of who Jesus is and what he came to offer you and you realizing that it is true and it is good news that we all get a do-over. Let's pray.